open your Bibles. Imagine that. You need your Bibles this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and just the first two verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you again, just two verses, the opening two verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as we move forward in our series. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are so grateful that you are at work and you are even as we are gathered in this place, you are turning things around in people's lives. You are touching the hearts of prodigals. You are stirring their hearts. You are placing in front of them reminders of your goodness and your love. You are restoring people, you are healing people, you are drawing people to yourself, you are comforting those who are mourning, those who are suffering, you are at work. And I pray God that we would understand better today your plan for our lives, for your world, and for your church. I ask God that you would help me to speak with clarity and simplicity today. I pray God for your anointing, not because I've earned it or deserve it, I don't and haven't, but because I need it. Help me just to speak truth that will encourage our hearts today. Captivate the attention of everyone in this room for these next few minutes, I pray. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. 19th, um, 19th century, Scottish author, and he was a poet, and he was a congregational pastor. George MacDonald once wrote these words. Um, this will be our jump off point today. He said, we are dwellers in a divine universe where no desires are in vain, if only they be large enough. Let me say that again. We are dwellers in a divine universe where no desires are in vain, if only they be large enough. Now there are some to, for whom that statement might be a little off-putting, almost sounding a little arrogant, but it's actually packed with some really excellent theology. Let me explain. This is a divine universe. How many believe God created the heavens and the earth? It is a divine universe that God created. And how many know that we are not God? Say amen if you know we're not God. That creator has placed in each of us great desires. He has placed within each of us a longing for significance, a longing for fruitfulness and productivity. And these longings are not prideful, they're not vain. That is, if those longings are large enough. By large enough, I mean that is beyond our own abilities and our own power. 
dependent upon God's. You can't be prideful and vain if you're asking God to do something that is beyond your ability to do. You wouldn't be arrogant about that because you would say, this is something God did, it is something that I could not have done. By large enough, we mean it is part of the divine plan of God. That is, it is not satisfied with the lower life of those things that are fleeting, and worldly, and fleshly, but it's concerned with that which is spiritual, that which is above the earthly, sensual life in which so many get trapped. In the opening message of the series in 2 Corinthians Sufficient last week, we discussed the challenges and the complexities of our world, and it is a complex world in which we live. It is a quickly spiraling downward world in which we live. For many, it is almost a hopeless world, and we find ourselves saying, like Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? How can we deal with this world. We learned last week about the foundation of our sufficiency. If we're going to walk in sufficiency and navigate this world, then the foundation of that is our message has to be the centrality of the cross, what Jesus did. It has to be about Christ. It has to be about the cross and his resurrection. It has to be about the hope that we anticipate. If our message is not Christ-centered, then there is no hope for us, and we would find ourselves feeling very insufficient in this world. We talked about at the end last week that we must carry the torch to walk out that sufficiency. With Christ at the center of our message, Christ at the center of our lives, we must pass this on to the next generation and ultimately to the world. So today, we're gonna look at the divine plan and see it unveiled, and it's a divine plan that each of us needs to understand what is God's plan for us to be able to navigate this very complex world rooted in the sufficiency of Christ, rooted in the cross. What is God's plan for us? What is that plan that we need to understand? Let me just tell you a few things about the letter, 2 Corinthians itself, very quickly. As was normal for ancient letters, Paul begins by identifying himself as the sender. Paul, he says, an apostle, of Jesus Christ. He makes it even more specific. He doesn't just give his name, but he says, I am Paul that was the apostle. This is not just somebody by the name of Paul. This is Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ. By the way, he used that salutation in seven other letters that he wrote. He also introduces um, one who is his co-author, Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy. He names Timothy as the co-sender of this letter to 2 Corinthians. And then he, uh, let me just give you a little bit about Timothy. Timothy is actually the younger protege of Paul, and he is one that Paul actually poured into and discipled him after meeting Timothy in his native town of Lystra. Now, Timothy had an interesting background, and it's not really necessary to go into that with any depth, but he was actually the son of a mixed marriage. His mother and his grandmother were Jews who ultimately came to faith in Christ, but his father was a Greek. And so he had a, a mixed family, but Timothy became the person that Paul poured into and took with him on several of his trips. And he was this one that is the co-author or the co-sender of the letter to 2 Corinthians. Paul took Timothy with him, and Timothy was actually with Paul 
when he founded the church in the city of Corinth. And so Timothy is very, very well schooled in the problems and the concerns of the life in the city of Corinth. Notice also he calls Timothy our brother. And there's a couple of reasons for that, I would suggest possibly one of those reasons is that Paul and Timothy uh, uh, are trying to uh, model unity for the Corinthian church. Corinthian church, if you remember, 1 Corinthians was very divided and some people said, I like Paul as my teacher and some said, I like Apollos as my teacher and some people said, I prefer Peter and, and everybody had their favorites and it was a lot of schism and a lot of division and so possibly Paul is speaking to those, those divisions and those factions when he calls Timothy his brother in Christ. But secondly, uh, I mentioned this a little bit last week, but Paul was being very rejected by some of the Corinthians. They were making false claims about him. He was under a lot of fire, and we're gonna learn that more as we go on in this series. But Paul was very much like Moses. Remember when Moses was rejected by the, the people of Israel, and Aaron and, and, and her were those ones that stood with him and held him up. And it's almost like Paul is saying, Timothy is that one that's standing with me. He is my brother. He is standing with me in my defense against all of the false claims and all the things that have been leveled at him. So he identifies himself, Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother in Christ and to the church at Corinth. The, the important clarity of these opening words reveals that Paul understood God's plan in respect to three things. These are the three things we're gonna talk about this morning. Paul understood God's plan for him personally. God had a plan for Paul. Secondly, go back to that screen, you jumped ahead of me, back to that screen if you would, the one right before that. Secondly, he understood God's plan for the world. And thirdly, he understood God's plan for the whole church. And I wanna talk about each of those just very briefly this morning. Number one, um, we need to understand God's plan for us as individuals. How many wanna know what God's plan for your life is? I, I hope you do. What is God's plan for my life? Here's how Paul opens his letter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and look at this next phrase, by the will of God. You see, Paul understood the distinct and crucial nature of his role as an apostle. The way Paul uses the term apostle is, is, is a means that placed himself among the 12 that walked with Jesus. Paul did not walk with Jesus. Paul did not, he was not at the Last Supper. Paul wasn't around when Jesus was crucified. Paul had not had that kind of relationship with Jesus, but when he calls himself an apostle, he is identifying himself with those original 12. One of the big theological arguments of the first century was who could be called an apostle. And one of the things they said is to be called an apostle, you must have seen Jesus. You must have walked with him. You must have actually encountered him. So for Paul to say, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ was a really big statement. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul's gonna defend his apostleship by saying, have I not seen Christ Jesus our Lord? So when did Paul see Jesus? 
He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. When he was on his way, and if you don't, didn't know this, Paul's name prior to being called Paul was Saul. He was on his way to killing Christians. He hated the Christian church. He was a Jew, he was a Pharisee. He wanted to stomp out Christianity altogether. But on his way to Damascus where he was gonna kill Christians, God struck him down by a bright light and God spoke to him. Later, Paul would stand before King Agrippa and he would defend himself. And here's what Paul said, listen to these words. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. And about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. And we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in the Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I asked, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul understood, I've seen Jesus. I'm not just a guy that heard about him second or third hand. I have seen him, I've encountered him. And so Paul calls himself an apostle and he understood the crucial role of that calling. Paul uses this term elsewhere and gives some other distinguishing notes about his apostolic call. First of all, Paul says his call was very specific. In Romans chapter one and verse one, Paul says, God separated me from my mother's womb. That's how specific my call was. God called me while I was still in my mother's womb separated to the gospel. That's why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because his call was very specific. And secondly, it was a call that was predetermined by God. He says again in Galatians 1.15, while I was still in my mother's womb, God called me. So it was a very specific call. It was a call that was predetermined by God. And so Paul lived and ministered with a very clear sense of the calling of God and God's plan for his life. Look again at verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at this, by the will of God. His ministry was going to get attacked. People was going to, were, were going to say he was not genuine. People were gonna say, Paul, you're not speaking the truth. People were gonna say, because you have suffered so much and you're so weak and you're not an eloquent speaker, you could not possibly be an apostle. Because you didn't take money for ministry, you could not be an apostle, they were going to attack him. But Paul, listen, look at me, had to rest in the assurance that his call was not self-proclaimed or self-initiated, but God had specifically and uniquely called him into this ministry. So Paul was not ministering in his own strength or power, but he was ministering according to the will of God. Now everybody look right here for just a moment. Everyone in this room, we must live, we must minister, and we must walk with the assurance that God has directed and ordered our steps. 
that God has given us gifts. And he has called us to do what he has gifted us to do. It is God's plan, and therefore we must do it. There's some biblical examples of people who resisted the call of God. Moses said, God, I'm not eloquent enough. I can't do it. The kids are going to learn about that today in Exodus 3 when God calls Moses. Moses is going to say, I'm not a good speaker. I stutter when I talk, but God says to Moses, but I've called you. When God calls Gideon, Gideon is going to say, when God calls him a mighty man of valor, Gideon's going to look around and say, who are you talking to? Because I'm the weakest guy in the weakest clan. How could you make me who I am? So there are biblical examples of those who doubted, but there are also biblical examples of those who accept the mantle. David was just a little guy. Everybody said David couldn't do it, but God called David, and David said, I'm going to be the very best king I can be. Daniel was not much, but God called Daniel, and Daniel said, if I have to go to lion's den, I'll do it because God has called me. Now listen to me this morning. Satan wants you to doubt what God has called you to do because if we understand and walk in God's will, people's lives will be touched. Everybody look at me for just a moment. If you do what God has called you to do, if you accept God's call on your life, whatever that may be, and you do it, people's lives will be changed. So Satan wants you not to do what God has called you to do, because if you don't do what God has called you to do, people's lives will not be changed that you could have otherwise touched. And that battle goes on in our minds. Romans 8, 5 through 8 says those whose minds are on the flesh, they mind the inclinations and the doubts and the fears of the flesh. But Paul says we are not to be of the flesh. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says the God of this world has blinded the, our hearts. Here's what Satan does. He gives us a desire to lure us away from that call. That's what he did in the garden. Look at that tree. Doesn't that look nice? Why don't you eat that? He, he gives us a desire He'll say, maybe if you did this instead of what God called you to do, it lures us. And then he chooses our weakest time. That's what he did with Jesus in the wilderness when he hadn't eaten for 40 days. Satan will come to you in your mind. He'll try to lure you away. He'll get you at a weak moment. He'll create doubts. Can I really do this? Can I really do what God has called me to do? And then he will obscure the truth. And we'll start listening to our doubts rather than to his spirit's. We'll start listening to the lie of the enemy instead of the truth of God's word. But Satan, the Bible says, seeks to destroy. How many believe he seeks to destroy? He seeks to pull you away from what he has called you to do. So Romans 10 says we are to take every thought captive. When Satan speaks a lie that says, no, you're not called to do that, you take that captive. Romans 12 and verse 2 says our minds are to be renewed day by day. Can I tell you, as someone who has been a pastor since 1985, I cannot tell you how many times I've battled this very thing. I see other people much more eloquent than me, much more successful in the world's eyes than me. There are times I go to minister's conference and I want to hover in the corner because I'm not like the rest of them and I'm not maybe as sharp and eloquent as some of them are and they can just talk freely and they don't stumble around with their words when they're asked a question. And there are times that that plays in my mind as well. But God needs us to understand his plan for us as individuals. If we're going to be what God has called us to be, we must understand God's plan 
for us. Say amen if you believe that. Secondly, we need to understand God's plan for the world. Look at this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. It's important to know what the Corinthians would have thought of or what they would have understood by that little phrase, by the church of God, which is at Corinth. Today, when we talk about a church, some people think about a building for religious worship, some think about a congregation, some think about a denomination. Some, when they say the church, think about Christianity or the Christian faith. But the way Paul used this word, when he said the church of God, which is at Corinth, the way Paul used the word and the way that Luke used it in Acts 19, the word church bore the meaning of the assembly. The Greek word is ecclesia, the assembly. Whether that assembly happened all the time or whether it was occasional, that's what the word church meant when Paul used it. In Acts 19.32, here's a use of that word ecclesia. Some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly. The ecclesia was confused. It was a gathering of people. That's what ecclesia meant. In Acts 19.39, we see it again. If you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful ecclesia, the gathering of people. In Acts 19.42, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the ecclesia, the assembly. So this assembly, ecclesia, was the gathered people in a large group. Now the Corinthians, listen, they had many small house gatherings. They met from house to house. But all of the people that heard that letter in each of those little house gatherings would have known what Paul was talking about. He wasn't talking about a house group. He was talking about the assembly when all of them gathered together. Ecclesia, all the church of God at Corinth, all of those little house groups coming together and gathering. Paul's usage was informed by this word in the Greek Old Testament for the gathering of God's people. Again, Ecclesia. In Judges 20, 1 Chronicles 23, all the tribes of Israel, look at this, stood before the Lord in the assembly. Go ahead and click that next screen if you would. All the tribes of Israel stood before the Lord in the assembly. That's the ecclesia. Stephen in Acts 7.38 spoke about God's people as the congregation, the ecclesia in the wilderness. And they gathered, look, what they do? They gathered to hear the living words that Moses had received. So the church of God at Corinth was to be viewed as the people of God gathered to hear the word of God so that they could be the temple of God in the community. So when Paul said church, he wasn't talking about a house gathering. He was talking about all of those people gathering together in the assembly so they could grow together and be the temple of the Holy Spirit in their community. And it is a church that belongs to God. It is his church. In Thessalonians, Paul said the church was in God, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was saying the church is now a reality, but it's still hidden in God in Colossians 3, but it's gonna be fully revealed when Christ comes. Listen to me, the church today is the present anticipation 
of the future manifestation of the people of God that will eternally be with him. Listen, if you've been in the Revelation study at all, we have looked at several scenes in the book of Revelation where there are people of every tribe and every kindred and every tongue, and they are around the throne. What the church is supposed to be is a present reality of a future manifestation when there will be people gathered from every tribe, every kindred, every tongue around the throne of God worshiping him. Won't that be a great day? So as Paul wrote to them, they were not living out God's plan. They were in a godless city. There were many issues in the church at Corinth. There were splinter groups. But Paul said, listen, Paul said, but God's plan is for the church, the ecclesia, the called together ones to reach the world. I may wreck some of your theology here in the next 90 seconds, but the church is not a get together with your favorite people to the ones that you get along with. Amen, Pastor Kevin. The church, despite the home church movement, is not a home church. The church is not a dinner gathering. The church is not, and I, I, this is where some of your theology may be wrecked, but the church is not everywhere two or three Christians are gathered. We grew up being told that this is the church. Wherever two or three, yes, that's true. Wherever two or three is, are, he is in their midst. But just because he is in their midst doesn't make it the church. The church is the gathering of the people of God. It is the gathering of God's people to hear the word proclaimed so that they might then go out and impact a dark and lost world. That's the church. It is imperfect. Say man, if you believe the church is imperfect. We don't always agree. We don't always get it right. And we are all hypocritical at times. Say amen if you believe that. But it is still God's plan for a lost world. And here's the good news. Jesus said he would build his church. You are a chosen generation, Peter said. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out. Look at that word. Kaleo. That's where ecclesia comes from. He called you out, out, kaleo ek, out of, again, ecclesia, kaleo ek, out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you know what we have here today? We have people who have been called out, called out together in the assembly to hear the word of God proclaimed so that the called out, listen to me, can then go out and become the temple of God, the light of the presence of Jesus in a dark world. Say amen if you believe that. G. Campbell Morgan said, the church of God apart from the person of Christ is a useless structure. However ornate it may be in its organization, however perfect in all of its arrangements, however rich and increased with goods, if the church is not revealing the person, lifting him to the height where all men can see him, then the church becomes an impertinence and a sham, a blasphemy and a fraud, and the sooner the world is rid of it, the better. I'm just telling you, there's a lot of gatherings that are not the church. 
the church is the called out ones gathering to hear the word of God so that they can go out and shine the love and light of Jesus to a lost and dark world. So we need to understand God's plan for the world. We need to understand his plan for us. We understand his plan for the world is the church. Like it or not, this is what God chose. I don't know why God chose the church because we're a mess, but he chose the people of God to impact the world. And thirdly, and I'm gonna quit with this one, we must understand then God's plan. If we are God's plan for the church, what is God's plan for the church? If we are God's plan for the world, what is God's plan for the church? Listen to what Paul says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Look at this, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. There's two key things here, and I'm just gonna mention them quickly. First of all, to all the saints who are in Achaia. That would have included Thessalonica, that would have included Greece, all of that was part of Achaia. Simply makes the point that the message has a broader appeal than just a little city church in Corinth. This is how the church was to operate. It was for the church universal. It has broader implications than just Corinth. But the second matter is really primary, and that is, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ and Timothy to all the saints. The word saints is the word hagioi, and um, hagioi means holy, to all the holy ones. Um, this is not a trick question. How many consider yourself a holy one? Everybody's going to be afraid to raise their hand. All right. <laughs> to all the holy ones. Let me tell you something about holiness. It is a God-given status. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. It's a God-given status, and it's twofold. Holiness does two things. It separates us from evil. Some people think that's the only part of holiness. It gets us out of evil, but it also dedicates us to God and to the service of others. It's being called out so that we can be called in. Paul is calling the church to this message. The holiness, so Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to all the church of God, to the saints, to the hagioi in all of Achaia, Paul is calling the church to this message, the holiness they enjoy in God's sight, which is his free gift to be lived out in practical service. How many believe God made you holy? Raise your hand if you believe that. God made you. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. We could become the hagioi of God, the holiness of God. So he gave us that holiness so that we could live that holiness out in a practical means. Holiness is, number one, a required status. Now, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But a verse we did not put on there, Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. So, hagioi, holiness, is required. It is a required status. But holiness is also a divinely granted status. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Sanctify is the same word, hagioi, make you holy. May the God of peace sanctify you completely and make you whole, spirit, soul, and body, and be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews 13, 12, therefore Jesus also, that he might make us holy, sanctify us. People of God with his own blood suffered outside the gates. So holiness, look at me, I'm almost done, is what God has made you to become. But holiness is also on your end and my end, willing service and surrender. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm not done. Just stand. And nobody go running out and think, man, he got done early. Just stand, all right? Um, So let, let me, this is a real simple message today, and I want to make it super simple. Three things we need to remember, we need to know. God's plan for us. Whatever God has gifted you and called you to do, he expects you to do. It's by the will of God. It wasn't an accident. If God's gifted you, if he's given you passions, then he expects you to obey that. That's God's plan for you. Then there's God's plan for the world. How's the world going to be reached? It's going to be reached by the church. Universal. The called out ones who gather under the word, who are called out to then in turn go out. But then what does God expect from the church? What's his plan for the church? He expects a holy church. Now, we could not make ourselves holy, no matter how hard we work, no matter how many rules on the back of a membership card in 1957, it could not make you holy. How many believe that? It couldn't make you holy. Don't dance, don't play cards, don't do this, don't do this. That doesn't make you holy. Holiness is a divinely imparted gift. Say amen if you believe that. The righteousness of God, holiness of God put, got put into your account. Not because you did anything, just by faith you received it. So as those who have been made hagioi, made holy, God then expects, expects us to willingly serve and surrender. He separates us to himself from evil dedicate ourselves to him and to his service. We cannot, listen, we cannot create, improve, or enforce the divine act of making us holy. You can't get any more holy. Some of you think you can, but you can't get any more holy. He made you holy. Otherwise, it would be work salvation. I could somehow make myself more holy. You can't create it. You can't improve it. You can't enforce it. But you can walk worthy of it. He's made you holy. But you can walk worthy of it. God, because you made me holy, I want to live up to what you made me. I want to walk it out. I'm part of the church. The called out ones, called out, called in together to go out. And I want to walk holy so I can shine a bright light in a dark and lost world. John Piper said there are two kinds. This is a powerful illustration. I'm going to quit here. There are two kinds of magnifying. There's a microscope magnifying and there's telescope magnifying. The one makes a small thing look bigger than it is. The other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. 
When David said, I will magnify the Lord, he does not mean I will make a small God look bigger than he is. He means I will make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. We are not called to be microscopes. We are called to be telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their products out of proportion to reality when they know their competitor's product is far superior. There's nothing and no one superior to God. And so the calling of those who love God is to make his greatness begin to look as great as it really is. That's why we exist. That's why we are saved. That's why Peter said, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out, ecclesia, out of darkness into his marvelous light. The whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Feel think and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. Be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. That's why we want to walk holy. Not to make God look bigger than he is, but to start showing people how big he really is in our lives as we trust him and we obey him to work in us. We must understand God's plan for the church. We are called to be holy. I open the message with this quote, and I'm gonna close it with this quote. George MacDonald, we are dwellers in a divine universe where no desires are in vain if only they be large enough. Nothing could be larger or greater than desiring to be what God has called us to be, to be the church that God has called us to be. And through lives of holiness, make Jesus known to a lost world. How many want to live up to those grand, great desires? Jesus, help everyone in this room who may be struggling with their own personal calling to shut down the lie of the enemy and to say no to those whispers that would tell them they cannot do what God has called them to do. Lord, help us to understand as imperfect as the church is, we are your plan for a lost world. And help us, God, to be telescopes of the glory and the magnificence of God. I pray in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed for just a moment. Is there anyone in this room that would say, Pastor Kevin, I'm not living for God today. My heart is not right with him. If Jesus were to come today, Man, I wouldn't make it. If my life were to be taken from me today, I would not be ready to meet him, but I so want to be ready. If that's you today, would you just slip up a hand right where you're at? I'd love to pray with you. Anyone in this room that would say, pray for me, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. Anyone in this room? Anyone in this place? Let me ask you a second question. Your head's still bowed, and then we're
we're going to close in just a moment. How many would just honestly say, I'm not going to have you come to the front. Nobody's looking around. How many would honestly say, I struggle with really believing that I can be what God has called me to be? How many would just raise your hand? I know what he's called me to be and do, but I struggle with that sometimes. How many then would say, but I want to be not only do what he's called me to do, but I want to be at our church to be the greatest telescope for the glory of Jesus Christ that this world could ever know. How many would raise your hand with me and say, that's the desire of my heart. Father, make it be so. Help us to walk worthy of our calling, to learn to abide in your presence so that your life can flow out of us.